0: This is Jonathan Marks, and welcome to the On Your Marks Book Review podcast. This week I read The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation, written by New York Times Magazine writer and former Fast Company editor John Gertner. Despite the 10 years that have passed since this book was published, it remains hands down one of the most fascinating books related to innovation that I've ever read. Mind you, this is no how-to book, but rather a detailed and meticulously researched narrative about an organization that few know of, but whose innovations and inventions have touched every one of our lives. AT&T, or the American Telegraph and Telephone Company, was founded in 1885 and was the successor to the Bell Telephone Company. Both of the firms were started by Alexander Graham Bell. The latter firm was started with support from his father-in-law, Gardner Hubbard, AT&T soon became the largest telephone company in the U.S., and while there were a number of smaller regional or local providers, AT&T dominated across most of America and soon became the target of the U.S. Justice Department as they began to acquire competitors and rivals in various regional U.S. markets. Where AT&T excelled was in two areas. Firstly was the creation of long-distance telephony. In the early stages of the telephone industry, users were restricted to making local calls through small local or regional exchanges. While there was understanding as to how to set up a long distance network, what was not available was the technology to amplify the signal over long distances. And this then became the company's second area of deep competence innovation. Bell Labs began life as Volta Laboratory, something started by Bell when he won the Volta Prize, from the French government in 1880 for his invention of the telephone. Over time, this morphed into Bell Labs, and after AT&T took a substantial controlling interest in Western Electric, the manufacturing company that built the equipment needed in the telephony industry, Bell Labs was formally incorporated in a large facility owned by Western Electric in West Street, New York. What makes this event intriguing is the fact that at the turn of the last century, a company that was essentially enjoying an absolute majority in the growing telephone industry, was ready to cede a substantial R&D facility. Bell Labs became more than the means to innovate within the core business of AT&T and Western Electric and soon earned a reputation for being a seat of scientific and industrial research in the United States. The lab became, as a former president of Bell Labs is often quoted as saying, an institute of creative technology. Those familiar with the personalities behind the application of science and technology to industrial innovation will be familiar with the roster of names that helped create Bell Labs and the legacy of innovation that cuts across the world today. Mervyn Kelly, Jim Fiske, William Shockley, Claude Shannon, John Pierce, and William Baker. Shockley won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1956 and was founder of Shockley Semiconductors, whose early employees included Gordon Moore, and Robert Noyce, who went on to found Intel, as well as Eugene Kleiner, who founded the legendary Silicon Valley firm Kleiner Perkins. Moore was also responsible for developing Moore's Law, which correctly predicted that the number of components on a microchip would double each year while the costs halved. This is largely held true since he first mooted the idea in 1965. The book unfolds in a very unusual manner. I'd expected a timeline treatment of the Bell Labs story, taking the reader through the stages of development of the lab and the personalities and innovations that occurred. I guess we all like a logical structuring of complex stories. But what happens instead is that while the technology seemed to hold centre stage, with Gertner explaining the manner in which Bell Labs moved through various innovations as the demand from customers and from AT&T was felt, What in fact unfolds is a back and forth across the chapters as people join Bell Labs and collaborate with one another on old, current and future technologies. I'm unsure if Gertner in fact intended this approach, but what I noted in this back and forth was a proxy for how innovation occurs. It is seldom linear and even less likely to be focused on the efforts of one person. Innovation in general, and within the Bell Labs story, happens through random encounter, and engaged study, observation, sharing, and experimentation. What was most surprising for me was how as early as the 1930s, management and leadership at Bell Labs understood much of what we today think we have only just discovered about collaboration and the cross-fertilization of ideas. Yes, some of the ways in which this occurred seem somewhat anachronistic to our current style of work, for example, to encourage engagement and interaction, no one was allowed to work with his office door closed, and offices were located in long corridors, with services such as canteens strategically placed, such that the long walk to get a cup of coffee would mean that you would pass by a colleague's offices or meet them in the corridor. But I believe that these ideas indicate the extent to which innovation was supported within the organisation. And while office space design in particular, for instance, has since come of age, and even Bell Labs did away with this design in favour of more open-plan spaces, I think the point is well made that the innovations from the lab emerged through a purposeful design to encourage cross-functional collaboration. As Gertner says in the book, and I quote, By intention, everyone would be in one another's way. Members of the technical staff would often have both laboratories and small offices, but these might be in different corridors, therefore making it necessary to walk between the two, and all but assuring a chance encounter or two with a colleague during the commute, end quote. What also became clear in the book was that the effort that Bell Lab placed in sourcing the best talent across the US to join their ranks. Pay was high relative to the industry and certainly relative to academia, and as such they attracted bright young minds from the best science and engineering schools, such as Caltech and MIT. AT&T recruiters would form strong relationships with professors at these schools, and would be tipped off to the top PhD students in each class to recruit for the lab. And this led to great moments of innovation, as the clustering of great minds always does. In some ways, the early days of the lab seemed to mirror a university department, with reading groups, colloquia, and research publications emerging. But all was always focused on improving the technology that drove AT&T's core business, and its growth and expansion as the leader in local, and then subsequently long-distance telephone services in the US and around the world. This was applied science, and while some ideas were frighteningly ahead of their time, for example the picture phone which was rolled out in 1969, essentially an early version of Zoom video calling, and mobile phone services created from the first mobile radio products in the 1920s, there was a sense that the group of scientists and engineers working at Bell Labs were testing the limits of our physical world. This seemed to be largely supported and even encouraged by the lab management and their overlords at AT AT&T, something that is in direct contrast to a similar initiative happening at the same time. The Xerox Corporation, headquartered just a state away in New York, by now Bell Labs had moved into new facilities in New Jersey, had created the Palo Alto Research Centre to innovate in the area of office automation. However, the cultural difference between these two groups essentially a bunch of hippies in California at Park, and the suits at Xerox Corporation head office in Rochester, New York, meant that the innovations that emerged from PARC were never commercialized. These include PDF documents, Ethernet cabling, and even the graphical user interface. Bell Labs and AT&T, however, managed to get this relationship right. And from the development of the transistor, which replaced vacuum tubes, to the amplification technology needed for long-distance calls, the undersea cabling for international calls to networks, ground-to-air radio, fax services, sound and motion pictures, broadband services, radio astronomy, radar, lasers, cellular systems, Unix, fibre optics and on and on and on, Bell Labs has led and continues to lead the development of communication technology. It's hard to imagine a world without communications. We so unconsciously pick up our phones to send a message or make a call or flick on a TV to watch Netflix, all the while oblivious to how much research, development, science and innovation lies behind it all, The Idea Factory is the book that peels back this veil. This exceptionally well-written book offers deep insights into the science and technology of our modern world, but always with an eye to the market. As was the maxim at Bell Labs, and I quote, The first is that if you haven't manufactured the new thing in substantial quantities, you have not innovated. The second is that if you haven't found a market to sell the product, you have not innovated, End quote. And so despite the best efforts of the U.S. government to control AT&T through antitrust legislation, including breaking the company up into the so-called baby bells, the lab continued and now in its current incarnation as part of Nokia, still innovating and still improving communication technology in our world. I would suggest that we have much to be thankful for especially for those scientists and researchers who took it on themselves to push the boundaries of knowledge, science and technology to create our digital world. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. As always, please feel free to pass this on to others and to share your feedback with me. In the week ahead, I'm reading the book Billion Dollar Loser, the story of WeWork. It looks like a compelling read of this once darling of the internet age who seems to represent the excesses of the early 2000s, So please do look out for that podcast next Tuesday. And for the rest, I'm wishing you a wonderful week ahead.